Well, if I haven't had a chance to say good morning yet, good morning. <laughs> it's great to see you all here. Uh, every week it's wonderful to see a few, few more, a few new faces as we get closer and closer to the fall. So we're very glad that you were able to be with us here today. Uh, we are at the last week of our series we've been going through this summer called Be Fruitful, where we have been looking at the fruits of the Spirit that are listed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, if you want to reference that. And these are aspects of the work that God does in a person's life. When, when a person surrenders their life to Jesus Christ and they become a follower of his, it talks about how the Holy Spirit comes to dwell among us and within us. And, and, and that's not just something that, that happens and is contained within us, but it can be revealed through us so that others can actually experience it in us as well. It's not necessarily something that we ourselves manifest through our own efforts and trying harder, but it's the work of God in our lives. So each week we've been looking at one of these uh, aspects, these expressions of the fruit of the Spirit. And today we're going to look at the final one, the final one, which is self-control. Now, self-control, very simply, we kind of are familiar with this, is, is the ability to control oneself. Well, duh, it's self-explanatory, right? <laughs> to control oneself. But quite often it involves things like moderation and constraint. Uh, being able to say no to like, our, our, our more carnal desires and impulses and temptations. And when we think about self-control, I, I believe it's com kind of common for people to look towards like behaviors, certain behaviors that we need to practice self-control in. But it actually applies to more than just behaviors. It can be applied also to our emotions and to our thoughts as well. For example, it all fits together. It can, it can exist in all three of these areas. Consider uh, a story such as this. Uh, imagine a young lady who sends a text to a friend and, and she types on her phone and hits send. And then she can see that she got a little red message, so she know her friend got it, and then she sees bubbles. Bubbles, bubbles, bubbles as her friend is responding, but then all of a sudden, no bubbles and no response. She realizes her friend is ghosting her. Well, in this moment, she starts to have a thought. The thoughts of, oh no, is she angry at me? Did she read it and she misunderstand what I was, what I was thinking? And as the spiraling thoughts go downwards, I wonder if she will ever talk to me ever again. And then all of a sudden you think, oh, if she's not going to talk to me, I, you know, am, I, am I going to lose my friends and I'm going to be excluded from the group and it's so hard to make friends these days, I'm just going to be alone forever. Thoughts that spiral, we call that stinking thinking. Everyone ever do stinking thinking where you just kind of spiral downwards? Well, when we do that, it leads to emotions. Emotions like, well, being sad in that particular situation. And maybe sadness turns to anger, anger at myself. How could I send such a, such a foolish text or, or anger at a friend? How would they not understand what I meant? And then anger to the point of saying, well, I have these emotions that build and build. I'm just not worthy of friends. Thoughts lead to emotions, which lead to behaviors. The only solution for this person then they decide is to buy a cat. <laughs> I must buy a cat because I will not have any friends. I will be lonely the rest of my life. So, no, I'll buy two cats because then my cat won't be lonely either. And as they continue to spiral, they decide eight cats. Eight cats is the right number for that sort of situation. And then they resign themselves to becoming the neighborhood cat lady for the rest of their lives because of a text that was sent and didn't respond to. Now, a silly story, but in each of these steps along the ways, there's an opportunity to practice self-control, to practice self-control on the thoughts before they get to emotions, before they get to behaviors, because we must control those cat impulses, because eight cats, I believe, is seven and a half cats too many for a person. 
So I'm not a cat person. <laughs> I apologize to the cat people. <laughs> Anyways, hopefully you've never experienced anything even close to that scenario. But I do believe this, that we all have thoughts emotions, and behaviors that you are currently aware of that need to be regulated. We're all subject to this. We all live in a world where there are outside forces that are competing for our attention, that are trying to tempt us in particular directions. All of us are subject to internal forces, these desires that want to be expressed, that want us to indulge. All of us have them in some fashion or another. All of us, the Bible talks about, are, are like cities, vulnerable cities that need to have defenses to protect them. Proverbs 25, 28 says, we are like, it says, like a city whose walls have become broken through is a person who lacks self-control. You see, ancient cities had these walls and gates all around them that were designed to keep the enemy out and to let friends in. And they would station guards and judges to stand at these gates to determine who was allowed to come in and who was going to be kept out. And when we talk about the spirit that enables the fruit of self-control, the spirit can be like these guards and these judges who determine what comes in and what must stay out. The spirit provides the capacity in our lives to practice moderation, constraint, and the ability to say no when we need to practice doing so. And, and this isn't just, here's the thing about self-control. It isn't just a Christian doctrine or, or a Christian idea. You know, there's actually, it's universally believed and universally accepted that there are some patterns of living that are more successful than others. That, that's not a Christian ideal. That you'll find that in every religion, every philosophy, even in secular humanism, you'll find this idea that there are some patterns for living that are better than others. And here at West Meadows, when we say life is better with Jesus and we invite people to experience that, that's part of what we're speaking to. Is that while we believe life eternal is far better with Jesus than the alternative, we also believe that God has a plan for your life in the here and now. That God has a pattern for living for all people in the here and now. And it is far better than any other option you will find in this world. And we can look to Jesus to provide instructions for this pattern of living. But we can also look to Jesus who provides what it looks like, an example of what that looks like when it is lived out perfectly. And one of the beautiful things about Jesus' example he sets for us in the Bible is that it also includes these moments where he needed to practice constraint and self-control. You know, and I couldn't think of any better example of this than when Jesus found himself tempted in the wilderness, found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles or your phones with you, I invite you to perhaps turn to that if you want to follow along. We're going to go through it quickly, um, but it's a point of reference if you want to follow along. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning to that, uh, just to set this in context a bit, this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's at a point where he has just been baptized by, by John the Baptist, and, and the gospel accounts tell us that immediately following the baptism, he has sent out, verse 1, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 will say, he was led by the Spirit. God called him out into the desert where he was to be tempted by the devil. Now, not only is this one of the harshest environments to be endured upon earth, 
But it also turns out that he was not just in this environment, but he was fasting for 40 days. And so in this place, the sun is scorching down upon him. He has no food, very little water, and he is all alone for 40 days. His body is weak. His weight and his energy are becoming depleted by the situation. And it is then that the devil shows up. It is then the devil who has been prowling around like a roaring lion looking, just waiting for someone to devour, comes and tempts Jesus. The first temptation found in verse 3. Which seems actually apparently relatively harmless when you look at it at first. Perhaps even helpful to the moment, you could argue. As the devil comes to him and says in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, there's nothing inherently evil about that, is there? Like, like after all, Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus took some fish and loaves and fed the 4,000. He, he, he fed the 5,000. How is this that much different? Isn't it kind of similar to all of those things? Well, on the surface it is, but you see, it isn't really about the bread. That's not really the temptation. It's not about the bread. You see, the temptation is more a matter of faith. The devil is trying to get Jesus to question. He's trying to tempt him to question in whom he will place his trust. Will Jesus look to himself to solve his own problem? Come under his own power, under his own authority to feed himself? Or will he continue to trust in God, who has proved his goodness in the past, has led him to this moment in the present, and controls the future? Jesus doesn't waver in his allegiance to the Heavenly Father. In verse 4, he just quickly responds and he says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting the words of Moses there. You find these in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses is addressing the Israelites, reminding them of how they in their wandering, how they in their desert journey had learned to trust God, had learned not to look to themselves, but had learned to trust and be satisfied with the manna, the bread from heaven that God provided for them. Second temptation. Satan takes Jesus to the highest point in the temple, and and he places him there in Jerusalem, and he says to him, if you are the son of God, jump off. Just jump off. Because scripture says, doesn't it? He will order his angels to protect you. He wasn't wrong. Scripture does say that. You can read that in Psalm 91. But, but Satan's taking the word of God and he is twisting it. He's twisting its meaning, its application for his own purposes. You see, instead of using the word of God, these promises of God to build up, to install confidence in a person, he's twisting them. He's twisting them to say to Jesus, are you sure? Are you sure he's got your back? You know, you got a pretty big journey ahead of you here, Jesus. There's, there's going to be some challenges along the way. You just might want to make sure God's really there for you before you set out. Are you sure he's there for you? Is the nature of the temptation. You see, the enemy's purpose here was not to reassure Jesus by any means. It wasn't like, hey, you better jump off to find out, then you'll be confident. No, it was to lead him astray, to lead him to twist God's words. And so instead, Jesus says to him, Scripture also tells us, you must not test the Lord your God. 
And the answer makes sense if you think about it. Because who conducts tests? If Jesus had followed Satan's suggestion here, he would have been conducting a test upon God. But who in our lives conduct tests? Well, quite often it's teachers, it's professors, parents, managers, trainers, people like this. People in a position of authority conduct tests. Now, if we conduct a test on God, it's almost like we are assuming authority over him to test him. Now, we may not say that with our words, but if Jesus had succumbed to this temptation, he would have been doing so through his actions. And we find ourselves at the third test, the final temptation in verse 8, where the devil now takes Jesus to the highest mountain. And he shows him all of the kingdoms and all of their splendor of the whole world. And he says to Jesus, all of this I will give you. All of this you can have if you will just bow down and worship me. This temptation is a temptation for Jesus to take a shortcut. To take the easy way out. It's almost like the devil is coming to him and saying, you know the rejection. You know the difficulty. You know the pain of the road that God has planned for you. You know what's waiting for you. Here's another option. Just choose door number two, and you can still be the king of all these people you love so much, but we'll just do it my way, is essentially what he says to him. And this third temptation gets to the heart of every temptation. It gets to the heart of every sin. Will we choose our own way, or will we choose God's way? Because consider, after all, what is sin? Well, sin can simply be defined as anything that is contrary to the perfect will and character of God. And just as when you and I commit ourselves in a moment or for a season or for a lifetime to living life according to our own way, that has eternal consequences. So too Satan's temptation for Jesus. It is designed to keep him from experiencing the cross. And if he can keep Jesus from experiencing the cross, he can keep him from providing salvation for you and I. How does Jesus respond? In the same way we need to in the middle of these temptations. Away from me, Satan, he declares. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, quoting the words of God and remaining obedient to his will. And then verse 11. The devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. Now, you may not be able to relate exactly to each of these temptations that, that Jesus experienced. But all of us are susceptible to something. Maybe for you it's, it's not, you know, in the realm of, of hunger, you know, turning stones into bread. But maybe for you, it's acceptance. I just, I, you know, if I'm tempted, I can have this, take these steps and I will be more accepted. I'm vulnerable. Maybe for you, it's status. Having the nicest car, the biggest house, the, uh, whatever it may be, fancy jewelry, nicest suits. Status is a temptation. For many people, lust is a huge problem. For others, food can be an issue. 
There are people who are enslaved by gambling, by, by substances that just control them. That is their means of dealing and coping with stress and challenges in the world. For other people, it can be something like procrastination can be a temptation to, to not engage, to not do, to not participate, to delay, delay, delay. Or maybe for you, it's a combination of all those things. You see, while we all face temptations that are specific to each one of us, I want you to know this today, that all of them hold a few things in common. And that is good news for us. And here's what they all hold in common. First of all, each one is an area in your life where there's the opportunity to practice the fruit of self-control. And if we will practice the fruit of self-control, we can find victory. If we find victory, we will find freedom and joy. Each one is also an opportunity where we can see, sometimes surprisingly, that the enemy uses very, very similar tactics. And each one of them is an opportunity for us to actually know the devil's game plan. And as we actually analyze Jesus' response to these temptations that came his way, we can see the path to victory. Because you know what? The game plan the enemy uses, while the temptation is unique to each of us, the game plan is surprisingly similar. Notice, first of all, that in these first two temptations that the devil brought to Jesus, he started off by saying, if you are the son of God. Now it sounds like here he's trying to draw the sonship of Jesus into question. But both Jesus and Satan knew very, very well who he was. And that word if can also be understood as since. Since you're the son of God, why not put some of this authority to work for yourself? You see, these temptations were much more subtle than they appear at times. You see, the temptations were not an attempt to get Jesus to question his identity. And this is critical. They were not an attempt to get Jesus to question his identity. They were an attempt to get him to violate his identity. To violate who he actually was. And this is the first thing we need to know. We need to know who we are in Jesus Christ. That is the first step, knowing our identity, knowing who we are in Jesus Christ. Jesus knew who he was, and he could stand true in his identity. And because he stood true in his identity, he made a way for us to become identified as children of God. And that is an identity that many people here exist and is available to all people. Because when you make a choice to become a follower of Jesus Christ... To receive that gift of salvation that he made possible upon the cross. And then you seek to live your life according to his will and his ways revealed to us through scripture. At that moment, we are told we become new creations. We're told that the person we were before we met Jesus has died. And we are reborn, spiritually reborn to a new life. Paul describes it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says of himself, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He's not saying here, when we talk about becoming a Christian, we're not talking about adopting a new philosophy. Jesus says, 10 steps to a happier life. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being transformed. 
where our identity is no longer defined by our power, our past, our sin. Instead, it is defined by Jesus Christ, his power, his victory, his freedom is our new identity. This past week, I was out with uh, my son Joshua golfing. And we're waiting for a chance to tee off. And as I look down, a little, a little caterpillar crawled across the, across the greenway. So I took my club and, no, I didn't. No, just kidding. It just kind of, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> it was crawling across the tee box. And I thought to myself, it's kind of late in the season, man. Like you kind of missed the boat. Aren't you supposed to be like a, like a butterfly by now? You know, for whatever reason, he, you know, he didn't go through that process in his life. And I thought, no, how sad. Like the opportunity existed for him. Everything was within him. Everything was available to him to become, to transform into a butterfly. But he didn't. And so here he is, end of August, still inching along the ground. And I thought, how sad is it that sometimes we can all relate to that. People in this world can relate to that. You see, we all have the opportunity Everybody in this world has the opportunity to go through this transformation, has the opportunity to give their lives to Christ and be made new creations. Now, how sad is it that some people choose to reject that and never experience it and just continue kind of inching along the ground? But how much sadder still is it when so many people do enter into that new creation they do go through that transformation, but they never spread their wings. They never take off and fly. They continue to walk along the ground. You see, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, our identity and our ability in him becomes an eternal fact. There's nothing the devil can do to ever change that. His only tactic is to get you to violate your identity. His only tactic is to continue to convince you that you can't fly and that you need to just keep crawling on your belly like the snake that he is. But why would we ever want to crawl an inch along through this life when we can fly? That is the identity that we all have in Jesus Christ. So the first step to experiencing the fruit of self-control is to know your identity and to know the power you have because of your identity in Jesus Christ. The second step is to understand the enemy's game plan and to prepare yourself so that you will not be one of these undefended cities, but to prepare yourself for the battle that needs to be waged. In any competition, whether we're talking about a sales competition, uh, sports, or even in military combat. Knowing the other team's playbook is a huge advantage. I think we would all agree with that, right? If you can know the other team's tactic and playbook, it is a huge advantage to you. The same, I believe, is true in our spiritual lives. That while the temptations that we all face, and they will be varied based upon who we are, the tactics are surprisingly similar. You see, quite often the enemy will not come at us with these frontal assaults, these big, obvious, billboard-style public displays of temptations. Sometimes we face those, but we're all pretty good at, at defending ourselves against that type of temptation. No, you see, rather, the enemy is much more subtle, much more clever, 
uh, much more precise and therefore much more deadly. But we can know his playbook. And, and we find it actually in the book of James. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read this. It says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then after their desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This verse is a look into the devil's playbook. This four-step strategy that all of us are familiar to some degree in some context. And is sometimes referred to as the temptation cycle. It starts off with this idea of being dragged away. The term dragged away here is actually a fishing term. Where, where a fisherman will take a hook and he'll, he'll put a piece of bait on it. Or he'll put a nice attractive lure. And then he will cast that out into the water to try to draw out, to try to lure the fish out of hiding. How do the fish respond? Well, if you're a successful fisherman, the fish respond by, first of all, leaving their place of safety. And then they kind of swim around the lure for a while, just, just checking it out, seeing what it looks like, seeing how it smells, how it moves, how attractive it is. They then convince themselves that there's no danger. There's no danger, it's just, a, it's just food. And then they convince themselves that they can grab the bait, but not the hook. Now, obviously, fish don't think. <laughs> and so, so the fish aren't going through this mental process. But we do. We can go through a process like that. And Satan knows it. And he drops these lures in the water. And this is the step of enticement. That dropping of a lure in the water, now it may not literally be water for you, but it may be as you're walking down the street or, or as you're driving to work or to school. It may be something that's on your phone. It may be something that's on the internet. It's this lure, this moment that creates desire, this enticement, where you hear this voice say, you need that. I wonder what that tastes like. I, I wonder what that feels like. You've had a hard week. You deserve this. Who would it hurt? Enticement. And when enticement is dropped in the water, it leads to conception. Now, conception is the process of forming and hatching a plan. When we talk about this in, in the circle of, of addiction ministries and addiction uh, therapies, it's sometimes referred to as the stage of ritualization where we start in a place of safety. But then gradually, somewhat knowingly in the back of our mind, we start slowly slipping away from safety towards what we know, not willing to admit, but know is more dangerous. It could be something as simple as surfing the internet innocently. But then your searches gradually, step by step, increasingly become less innocent. A ritualization may look like going to the store just to, just to browse, to kill some time. I got some time on my, on my hands. I'll just go browse at the stores. I, I know we're on a tight budget. I know I got to pay for, skid, for, for uh, kids' clothes and going back to school. I'm just browsing. I'm going to say no to the first thing, the second thing. I'm going to say no to the ninth thing. But, uh, but we already know I'm going to say yes to the tenth thing. 
It may be where we call somebody on the phone just to, I heard there's something happening in their life, and I'm just going to call them to express my concern. I want to pray for them, but, you know, I can't pray for them unless I know the whole story so I can play properly. And so I'm going to call them, and, and that story turns into another, turns into another, turns into another. But it's not gossip because it, you can't gossip at prayer meeting, right? If it happens in prayer, it's not gossip. Ritualization, conception. Which then leads to the third step of birth, which naturally follows conception. This is where whatever you had acted or dreamt or plotted towards, that action is now carried out. Where the tantalizing bait has not only been tested and tasted, but the hook was not avoided either. Which is why it leads to death. You see, sin promises that it will provide incredible joy. Sin promises it will give you the fulfillment you're looking for. But I can tell you that sin has never delivered on its promises. That regardless of any lie the enemy is telling you, sin cannot bring you life. It only brings death. It cannot bring you joy. It only brings shame. It cannot give you pleasure. It gives you pain. It cannot give you intimacy. It will bring you isolation. Sin will not deliver on the promises that it makes. It only brings forms of death. See, this is the devil's scheme. And I honestly believe, I have seen this enough in my own life and in the, in the years that I've been a pastor working with people and trying to help them find victory over these things. I honestly believe that if every single one of us, whether you're on site or online, if you sit down with a pen and a paper and you think back to what is that habitual sin? What is that thing that keeps tripping me up? What is that most recent sin that I committed? What's that most recent temptation I fell prey to? If you will sit down with pen and paper and write out the path, from where it started to where it was enacted, you will find this pattern in some fashion exists where there is an enticement. There is a conception, a plot, a plan to move closer towards it. There's no danger. I can avoid the hook. And then you act on it, and it gives birth to death. It gives birth to sin. So how do we wage war against it? Well, we need to know who we are, our identity in Christ, and the power available to us. We need to know the enemy's game plan. But then we need to know where to practice self-control in the midst of that cycle. Because where do most people, if you think back, and if you were to plot this with that pen and paper, if you were to plot, where do you kind of jump in and go, no, I, I got to stop it. I got to practice self-control here. What part of the process do most people try that? Well, I can tell you that statistically, usually it happens between conception and birth. Enticement's taken place, conception's taken place, I've gone too far down, oh no, oh no, I've gone too far, I need to practice self-control now before something is born. I'm going to take an educated guess here and tell you that if that is where you're practicing self-control, you're having poor results. Because once sin is conceived, 99% of the time, it leads to birth. The big reason that self-control is so hard is not because of the lack of power, the lack of identity within us. It's because quite often we deploy it at the wrong stage. You see, we need to fight the battle earlier than that conception to birth stage. If you want to start seeing victory in self-control, it needs to be deployed between enticement and conception. You can't stop enticement. That's going to happen. 
the world around you will continue to drop lures in the water. You can't stop that. You can't stop enticement. But remember, you have a God-given power and identity that you can put into action at the point of enticement. And that is exactly what Jesus did. The enticement couldn't be avoided in his life either. He's out in the desert for 40 days fasting by himself. He was not looking for temptation, but temptation was looking for him. And it found him. I see you're hungry. We both know the power you have. Would it really be that big of a deal, Jesus, to turn this rock into some bread? Enticement. But Jesus did not allow enticement to turn to conception. He didn't entertain the temptation. He didn't engage the enemy in a conversation. He didn't sit back and rationalize the situation. Well, I wouldn't do a rock to a loaf, but a stone to a slice. Is that so wrong? He didn't engage the enemy going, well, what do you mean, what kind of bread? He didn't even engage in the conversation. He did not allow it to go from enticement to conception. He would not give the devil a foothold to allow the next comment, the next lie, the next step that would lead him further down that path. We can simply go back. We haven't got time to look at it today, but you go back to the original sin where the, where the, where the devil talks to Eve in the garden. Enticement. You can follow this path there. Enticement. She engages. She doesn't practice self-control. She engages in a conversation, and Satan keeps going, did God really say? Did he really mean and before you know it, the fruit has been picked and tasted and leads to death. Do not allow enticement to turn to conception. Do not give the devil a foothold. Like Jesus, stand your ground time and time again. Because Jesus knew who he was. He knew who the enemy was and he knew the enemy was a liar. And he knew the enemy's game plan and so he stood his ground and the devil fled. Now I'm not going to tell you this is easy. I'm not going to tell you it's an easy process to enter into, but I can promise you this, that it is worth the fight. It is worth it because the power of Jesus reveals to us that we can have victory. And here's what I can tell you. And this is a little phrase you can take with you as you consider this in the days ahead. Whatever you choose to feed in your life thrives, but what you choose to starve dies. What you feed thrives, but what you starve dies. If you continue to allow sin to reign in your life, it will become harder to get over. Why? Because you're feeding the temptation. You're feeding the sin. You're feeding the habit, and it is thriving in your life. And it may not seem like it right now, but I can tell you that if you starve it, if you decide to stand your ground at the enticement stage, if you stand your ground and you start to starve that enticement, it will eventually die. And in the same vein, if you are starving your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are not in the word reading your Bibles, if you are not in a time of prayer with him regularly, if you are not fellowshipping with fellow believers to be built up, to be encouraged, to be trained up and strengthened, if you are not serving and giving, at one point you'll start to feel like you're losing touch. Like a part of yourself is, is starting to just die. 
be a controlled person who feeds themselves spiritually. And I promise you this, if we will do that, vitality will return because what you feed thrives and what you starve dies. So get in the word. Open your Bibles. Find a reading plan. Find scripture you can meditate on and memorize. Look at Jesus' response to each temptation. He quoted scripture. It was his sword he used to battle any temptation in his life because he had the word of God in him and ready to be used as a weapon and a defense. Feed yourself spiritually by getting into community. Surround yourself with other godly people who can support you, encourage you, hold you accountable. Take steps to pray on a regular basis. Live a life of prayer where you just share what's happening in your life, your fears, your concerns, your victory. Share those with Jesus in prayer. You can do that privately to your heavenly Father. You just commune with him or do it in collectively with other believers who can carry those burdens for you as well. Feed yourself. by give and serve. Sometimes temptations are, are, are defined simply by selfishness. One of the best ways to overcome selfishness is to give things away. Give away your time, your talents, your resources to others and to the church ministries. That is one of the best ways to combat any temptation of selfishness, is to give it away to God's purposes and use. Because what you feed thrives, but what you starve dies. So, as we move to conclude today, how do we practice self-control? Know who you are in Christ. Know the power available to you because you are in Christ. Know the enemy's game plan and starve him out while you feed the spirit within. As we close today, I want to ask you this question. What are you going to feed? What are you going to feed in your life that you want to thrive? But at the same time, what is it in your life that you are going to starve? Because you know it needs to die. As you leave you with that question, I want to invite you if you would stand with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of Jesus Christ. For the example of Jesus Christ. The one who made it possible that we can be children of God. Lord, I pray for all those who are gathered with us here in person or online right now. And as as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, Lord, if if there are people in the sound of my voice who know they need to feed the relationship with Jesus Christ, whether it's because they've never made that first time commitment or because they know that they have wandered away and they have allowed the wrong things to thrive in their lives. God, I pray and I invite them right now in their hearts or boldly enough to raise their hand virtually or in this place that are gathered with me to say this day I choose Jesus I invest in him and if you're one of those people I invite you to pray with me right now say Heavenly Father thank you for sending your son thank you for Jesus who paid the price upon the cross for my sins for, for the outcome of all of the temptations that I've allowed myself to succumb I believe that his work was sufficient to pay the price. I receive his gift of forgiveness. I commit or I renew my life to him in this moment. As he gave his life for me, I give him mine. 
And in these moments, Lord, we thank you that we can understand that we become new creations in Jesus Christ. That we are no longer defined by our sin or our past or by our own power, but we are defined by Jesus Christ in his victory, in his freedom, and in his power. And for those of us who are gathered here as well, if, if you know that you need to cry out to Jesus to experience light in that area of darkness in your life, that you need to stop taking the bait, thinking you can avoid the hook, but you've got so many hooks in your life. I invite you to pray with me right now as well. Say, Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I have gone my own way. That I have turned after things that are not of you, but that have enticed me. I acknowledge that these are things of the enemy, not the things of victory in Jesus. I confess these things to you, Lord. I repent of them and I want to go differently. I want to live in your way, Father. By the power of the Spirit that dwells within us and among us in this place, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that we would find victory in these things. That while we may not win every single battle, that we would stand fixed on the truth that Jesus has already won the war and that we are victorious in him. We pray this all in Jesus' name.